0: As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Uh, we are diving into um, the second last message of the miniseries we started a few weeks ago called Battle Ready, looking at the, the armor of God, the very familiar armor of God. And all of the, the battle imagery reminds me a lot of, of wars and war movies in particular. I'm a big fan of, of war movies, documentaries, and they always just fascinate me. And in every movie, especially um, more of the um, less on the documentary side, more on the Hollywood production side, you find in wars that there are two critical mistakes that a soldier can make and often does make, especially when you're watching these movies. The first critical mistake that soldiers often make is taking off their helmet in the war zone, right? So you have these scenes unfolding where the battle is going crazy, bullets are whizzing by, and all of a sudden a soldier in a bunker or something like that uh, takes a shot to the head and and he feels the helmet rattle and he realizes that the helmet saved his life and in his foolishness what will often happen next is he'll take the helmet off to look at how it saved his life only to then lose it, his life. The minute a soldier takes off his helmet in the battle, is often the minute everything goes wrong. But the second critical mistake a soldier can make in a battle is forgetting or losing or not caring for their weapon. It's kind of soldiering 101 that you always have your weapon on you or nearby. And again, in the movies oftentimes you'll find a scene unfolding where a soldier goes to grab his weapon only to realize he's forgot it or left it or dropped it. Or he goes to pull the trigger and something jams up in the weapon because he hasn't properly cleaned it or cared for it. He finds himself in an often more than precarious position. He finds that if he is missing his helmet and if he is missing his weapon, then he is in great danger. Both are critical for experiencing success on the battlefield, and the helmet will oftentimes give the confidence that is needed to stand firm in the battle. And the weapon gives you the power that's needed to experience success in the battle and victory in the battle. The same is true when it comes to spiritual warfare. And as we have been looking at the armor of God, we understand that what Paul says is true, that all of us are called into a spiritual battle. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the devil himself and his demonic powers. And what God gives us in the armor of God is the resources we need to stand firm, to withstand, to resist, to hold fast in the midst of the battle. And that's the message that Paul has been driving at us uh, through the word of God. We are to stand and we come to the final two pieces of armor this morning that will equip us to stand firm in the battle. We see the helmet of salvation and we see the sword of the spirit. Let's read the text together. Let's begin at verse 10. Paul reminds us of the importance of putting on the whole armor of God. And we've been looking at these pieces of armor, and with each piece of armor, we're reminded of how Satan is strategically attacking us in some way, in some area of our lives. And with each piece of armor, we see the call to put it on, to take it up, as we see the same truth this morning. And and, uh, we've been saying this all along, but to put on the armor of God is to put on God himself, The question is how do we do that? What we've seen in the last few weeks is that each of these pieces of armor is put on like this. There's something to be believed and something to obey. And as we do both of those things in tandem, what happens is we are given every resource to find victory in the face of the battle and the opposition from the enemy. The kind of line we've been using to lead into each of these points has been to suit up, because that's what this text is calling us to do, to suit up with the armor of God. So let's look first at the helmet of salvation. Suit up because the helmet of salvation protects against the fears of Satan. The helmet of salvation protects against the fears of Satan. You see, Satan wants us to live in fear. Fear in general is crippling and debilitating It often prevents us from experiencing any kind of joy, any kind of success, any kind of movement, particularly in the Christian life, but in every area of our lives, fear just cripples us. But there is a particular kind of fear that is utterly and totally debilitating for the Christian. I wonder if you've ever noticed um, when you're startled, or maybe, maybe you're an expert at startling others, uh, maybe you, you had somebody thrown at you or, or you throw something at somebody else and, and the, the natural reaction, what is it? What is it when, you, when you're startled, you quickly cover what? Your feet. N- no, your natural reflex and instinct is to cover your head, right? People will often quickly duck and cover their head, shield themselves from what's coming at them or what they think is coming at them. It's a reminder, listen, that there is something built into us that instinctively wants to protect what is most valuable, we understand that if something happens to our head, it affects all of us in a massive way. Satan wants to get fear into our heads because he knows what it will do to us. But you see, the helmet that is provided protects us against the fear that Satan throws our way. The helmet in ancient armor was made of a tough iron or bronze metal with cheek guards, kind of you can think of the Roman helmet, the cheek guards coming down across the front of the face and the side of the head. The inside lining was made of sponge that made the the weight, these helmets were incredibly heavy, and made the weight somewhat more bearable and gave a little bit of comfort. Nothing short of an axe could penetrate these helmets, and if you remember the context of the battle that we're talking about, this is a close combat kind of battle. This is wrestling that's taking place, And on the front lines of warfare, even in the ancient context, uh, the helmet was so essential because of the weaponry that was used against them, the swords, the battle axes, the hammers that would be coming their way. But the language here is taken primarily from Isaiah 59:17, where it actually tells us that God himself wears the helmet of salvation. God, our mighty warrior God, is described as putting on the helmet of salvation, which is a powerful symbol of one thing, confidence. It is a powerful symbol of guarantee. When God wears this helmet, it is the utter and complete guarantee of victory. It is the total um, demonstration of God's saving power. You see, it's the promise of rescue and freedom. When God goes to battle on behalf of his people, which is the way he's described in Isaiah as this mighty warrior God, here's what the people of God place their hope in, that the victory would be guaranteed because of their mighty God. Satan attacks with the fear in our lives that we cannot be saved, or that I am not saved. God counters with the promise that I am saved and I will be saved. You see, the helmet is designed by God to give confidence. That's kind of what helmets just do in a general sense. right? If you don't believe me, just throw a helmet on a five-year-old and watch them go to town. The stupid things I did as a child because I had a helmet on are amazing but there is a sense of confidence, right? You you feel impenetrable. You feel like you can conquer the world, and in a sense, that's what the helmet of salvation does for the believer. We are impenetrable. The, the, The victory is already guaranteed. There is an incredible amount of confidence that it is infused into the believer's life when they understand the helmet of salvation. There's something to be believed, and there's something to be obeyed. The believed part of putting on this armor is just that. It is believing the security that's yours in your salvation. The Bible talks about the idea that we are secure in Christ. And that's an incredible a protective measure in the midst of a battle. You see, no matter how hard and how painful, no matter how unjust, no matter how confusing, no matter how intense the battle is that's waging around you, the difficulties you're facing, listen, the reality of the Bible's teaching on salvation is this, you are guaranteed salvation. You're guaranteed. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. You can't lose it. You're already safe and secure in the arms of Jesus. And yet, Life doesn't always feel like that. Life will often make us feel very insecure. Sometimes our salvation feels very insecure. I was reminded of this as I I read a book recently. um, It's called Indianapolis. It's about a World War II, a US naval ship by that name, the Indianapolis. During the Second World War, this ship was torpedoed and sunk it had 900 men on board. It was one of the most powerful ships of the time, one of the, the, the most up-to-date warships that had ever been um, created or designed. But a, a Japanese torpedo struck it and sunk it, and 900 men jumped out into the ocean to save their lives, to fight for survival, floating in the open ocean. Many of them were severely injured um, from the destruction of the ship with burns and, and other injuries like that, broken bones, broken bones. They floated in the ocean, trying to band together, trying to hold on to one another. Starving, hungry, thirsty, some of them even giving in and gulping back the poisonous salt water. Exposure to the sun. And if that's not hard enough, they dealt with sharks. That's right. And as the survivors described, what it was like to be under these conditions. and they floated for four days, not knowing if anybody even knew where they were, and all of the, the pain and difficulty, and then throw in that they're, all of a sudden they're seeing fins kind of coming up all around them, and, and some of the, des- the descriptions of what was taking place are just unbelievable. One of the survivors describes the constant blood-curdling screams as people were grabbed by the sharks and dragged down to their death, only to see the life jackets pop up to the surface. It was so terrifying. The the, the amount of sharks was so crazy. At one point, in the middle of the night, they said it felt like they were walking on the backs of the sharks as they swarmed around them. 300 men out of the 900 survived. But for four days, they lived in constant fear, fear that they had been forgotten, fear that nobody was coming, fear that they wouldn't be saved, fear that they couldn't be saved. And you see, that's exactly what Satan loves to do to us. He wants to shipwreck our lives. He wants to torpedo us and sink us. He wants to leave us doubting God and doubting that God is good and kind and right. He wants us to believe that God has turned his back on us so that we will turn our back on him. Isn't that exactly what Satan tried to do to Job? You know the story of Job, right? There's there's Job, he's he's a faithful follower of God, he's committed to God, he's righteous in, in that sense. And Satan approaches the throne of God, and he says, just give me, give me a chance to sift this guy. Let me, let me expose him. Let me take, you know, you, you've given him all these good things. He's got a great family. I mean, he's very wealthy. He's got a fantastic reputation. Let me go in there and destroy his life, and then we'll see how much he loves you and how closely he follows you. And so God gives Satan a really long leash. And he says, you can go have your way with him. You can do anything you want. The only thing you can't do is you can't take his life. And so in goes Satan, and he just destroys, he wreaks havoc on Job's life, right? He just tears his life apart. I mean, he he loses all of his great wealth. It's all stolen. His whole family, all of his kids are killed in a crazy disaster. I mean, then to top it all off, he is sitting with boils all over his body. He is just in so much pain, and his wife comes alongside him and says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And he's sitting there having lost everything. He said, God, you left me with this. But the sentiment of his wife, listen, curse God and die is exactly what Satan was hoping he would do. It's exactly what Satan was after. Take it all away, strip him of everything, and what he'll do is he will curse you and die. He will see you're not worth being followed. he sees see you're not of supreme value. And that's what Satan wants for you and me. Oftentimes, he'll want to strip us of everything. He'll want to destroy our lives. He'll want to tear everything apart so that we, too, would curse God and just die. But you see, this is where the helmet of salvation comes in and reminds us that I have been saved by God, that regardless of what's going on around me and how difficult life may be, the pain that I'm in, the trial that I'm encountering right now, the the opposition from the enemy, I am safe and secure in the arms of God. I have the helmet of salvation. You can take everything away from me and it doesn't matter. I have everything I need in Jesus Christ. I mean, aren't you so thankful this morning that your salvation isn't, the security of your salvation isn't dependent upon how tightly you hold on to Jesus, but it's dependent upon how tightly he holds on to you? And the Bible says that all those who come to Jesus, not one will slip through his fingers. You understand what that means, that the grip of Jesus and the grip of God around your life is so tight and so secure, there is nothing that can move a finger a millimeter off of your life. You are so secure in the hands of Jesus Christ. The helmet, listen, of salvation has been placed upon your head by the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ comes, this is, this is so staggering just to consider in your life right now. You want to know how secure you are? You want to know how you can know you're secure? Because the God of this universe who created you, he left heaven. He left his glory in heaven. He came down to this earth, and he put on the flesh of man. He walked on this earth around sinners who were rebelling against him. He lived with them. He ate with them. He discipled them. And he walked directly to a cross of wood where he would hang and pay for your sins and mine. And then he would rise from the dead, declaring that death and hell did not have the final say. He did. He would be victorious so that all those who look to him can be guaranteed security of salvation. Listen, you can be secure because the King of Heaven left to come and find you and bring you to himself. He will not lose one. It guarantees that whatever happens, listen, you have no need to fear. You are already safe and secure in the arms of Jesus. This is exactly what Paul has already said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He said, for by grace you have been saved. That is past tense, perfectly completed past tense with ongoing results. You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of work so that no one can boast. Some of you in here, maybe you've just kind of walked in, maybe you've been invited, you're, you're not a follower of Jesus and you've been wrestling with this question and Satan really has been attacking you in this way, he's been trying to convince you that you're not worthy of being saved, that you can't be saved, that you're not valuable enough to God, that God wouldn't love somebody like you and you've walked in here and you've looked at your life and you said there's just, there's just no way, there's no possible way, you have no idea what I've done, listen, you have no idea what Jesus has done and that's the beauty of the gospel. The security is not found in what we have done or what we can do. It's found in what Jesus Christ and he alone has done, amen? That's the hope that we have. That is the helmet of salvation. That is the confidence that we have. There is nothing to fear and there's nothing to lose. We can lose everything in an earthly sense and yet we have everything we need in Jesus. The scripture speaks not only, listen, of our past salvation that has already happened, it actually speaks as well as of our future salvation. There is a forward-looking aspect to the helmet of salvation. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, look at what Paul writes here. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, listen to this language, the hope of salvation Paul is looking forward to a future day of salvation that he says motivates him and fuels him for the here and now. The guarantee of victory. Listen, the guarantee of victory and the future day of your salvation provides hope that is fuel for the fight today. Paul could look at his life and he could see the, the difficulties. He could see uh, and, and experience the thorn in his flesh, the messenger of Satan. He could experience all of the hardships he was going through for the sake and the name of Jesus Christ. And he could do it with courage and confidence because he knew what the Lord had waiting for him. There was a day coming that would eclipse all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the chaos. And sometimes that's exactly what we need. It's to believe that God has accomplished our salvation and to believe that there is a final day of salvation coming. There's something here to obey as well. And you see, it's not just about our past salvation and our future salvation. There is a present aspect to our salvation. In fact, Paul in Philippians 2.12 says this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Look, right now, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which is just a fascinating statement. And here's where we need to move, listen, from understanding the security of our salvation to understanding the assurance of our salvation. Those are two very different things. You are secure, that is an objective reality, but here's the the other reality, sometimes we don't feel like we're secure. Sometimes we don't feel like we're saved. We're looking at our lives and things are falling apart and the sin is so real and so present and we've been falling so often and so intensely sometimes that we look at our life and we're like, there's just no way I'm saved. I'm looking at my life, there's no way. We have no assurance of our salvation even though we may believe in the security of salvation. What Paul is saying is that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a side of our salvation which is being fleshed out here and now. This is by the way, if you can kind of understand it like this, this is the regular experience of daily victories. This is the experience of ongoing obedience in our lives. It's the evidence of your past and future salvation. This is driven not by a sinful fear of Satan, but a healthy fear of God, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that's not a cowering fear of God, that is a full and complete submission to the word of God. That is to say, God, I'm not gonna fear what other people think of me, I'm not gonna fear what other people may do to me, I'm going to follow you and follow you alone. My life is going to come under your lordship in every way. That's what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is to say, God, I want every area of my life to line up with what your word says. And I love how Paul describes what this looks like in Philippians 2, verses 27 and 28. I'll be up on the screen here behind me. Listen to what he says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the working out your salvation. So that, look at this, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. There's that language. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I love this. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not the physical opponents, not the spiritual opponents. You have no reason to fear because you are working out your salvation. Your life is looking like the gospel. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Did you catch that? It's a sign of your salvation that you are growing in likeness, that you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and that provides assurance that is needed in the battle. And you know, the truth is, you can tell that you're not wearing the helmet of salvation if you are not living in obedience. See, what robs me of assurance of salvation, Ian? It's one simple word sin. Sin. The presence of sin in your life. It deadens your conscience, it quiets the spirit. And if you're not careful, it perpetually builds leads you down paths of unrighteousness that only increase the questions of assurance that you experience. I'm so thankful that the word of God calls us to flesh out our salvation, to live it out daily, living the kind of life that corresponds to the gospel, being imitators of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.1. And I'm also so thankful, aren't you, that I don't obey to be saved, I'm saved and so I obey. And that makes all the difference in the world. We obey God out of gratitude for the reality that he has saved us by his grace alone. And the Christian life ultimately becomes a long obedience in the same direction. It is fighting for a consistency of life modeled by faithful and incremental steps in obedience. As you look at your life, I just wonder if you'll just consider the analogy of the battle again. If what Paul is saying is true, then your life and mine is simply to be viewed as a lifelong battle. A battle in which the enemy is fighting hard. He is vicious. He is more powerful than we are on our own. And our enemy The devil is opposing what the spirit of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ are doing in our lives, transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. Satan hates that. He does not want you to look like Jesus. He doesn't want you to be holy. He doesn't want you to grow in faithfulness to the Lord. He wants to prevent that at all costs. He wants to minimize, listen, minimize your ability to be effective with the gospel. He wants to diminish Jesus Christ through your life. He wants you to say you love Jesus and you follow Jesus, but he wants you then to not look like Jesus. We gain ground in the battle by living in the fear of God, not the fears of Satan. That translates into increased obedience and Christ likeness. And obedience and increased Christ-likeness are means by which God heightens the assurance of our salvation, by which we are placing upon our heads the helmet of salvation. We are constantly living out of gratitude for our past salvation. We are constantly living out of a hope of our future salvation. But this, listen, this kind of obedience to the Lord allows us to live currently in the joy of our salvation. The helmet of salvation is critical for being battle ready. Security plus assurance equals confidence. And that's what God wants for you and me as we enter into this battle. He does not want us fearful and timid. He wants us confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ in our security in him. So suit up, put on the helmet of salvation. Secondly, take the sword of the spirit which protects against the power of Satan. The sword of the spirit protects against the power of Satan. You'll notice in verse 17 again that he describes this, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, as we've looked at the armor of God, one of the things we've seen is that it's mainly a defensive in nature. Up to this point, it's been predominantly defensive. We're standing firm. It's, it's withstanding. It appears to be more of a resistance. But here we see that the sword is, is, yes, defensive in some respects, but it is predominantly an offensive weapon. It plays both roles, but the emphasis here is for sure on the offensive nature of what this weapon is for. You see, the word uh, for sword is the same word used for the Roman short sword. There's a different word that Paul could have chosen to use for a long sword, you know, the kind of big battle swords where they're swinging hard. This here is, is a smaller sword that soldiers would have kept on them, and it would have been incredibly important for close combat battles, right? You don't have the space you need to take big swings, but you can pull out a sword and quickly swipe or stab Incredibly effective and incredibly important for fighting hand-to-hand combat. And what Paul is reminding us here is that the sword that we have is the word of God. But notice how he reminds us of the connection between the word of God and the spirit of God. It's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. and, And it's reminding us in one sense of the source of God's word and the power of God's word. As Paul told Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God. It is infused with God. It is infused with his power and his ability. When we take up God's word to fight spiritual warfare, we have the unmatched, listen Christian, this is incredible, we have the unmatched weapon and the unmatched power of God to enjoy victory. I mean, that means that whatever Satan throws at us, no matter how powerful he is, no matter what weapon he uses, it pales in comparison to the power of the word of God. We've got everything we need to find victory in the battle, to destroy and overthrow and overpower Satan. It's right here in the word of God. I love what Kent Hughes says. He says, the word of God draws the blood of Satan himself. He then goes on to quote from 1 John verse 14, he says this, listen to this, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You see, the key to overcoming the evil one in your life is to wield the word of God, to be strong in the word of God. And if you are weak in the word of God, you have no ability to overcome the schemes of the devil. The word of God is an awesome defensive weapon but it is the most effective and powerful offensive weapon we could possibly hold. And our call is to take it up, that's what the text tells us. And I just want you to consider this in the midst of this battle analogy that Paul gives us. If you combine all of Satan's attacks, all of Satan's weapons against us, and see that he's trying his best to destroy any gains in personal holiness and faithfulness to the Lord, then you see how God's word is both offensive and defensive in a variety of different ways. You can match what what Satan is throwing at you, how he's attacking you, with very specific portions of the word of God. In fact, the word Paul uses, many scholars believe that it's not talking about the word broadly, but specific portions of the word of God that are wielded carefully and strategically. Do you follow what I mean by that? In other words, wherever Satan's attacking, the word of God has something to refute it. And it's our job to find out what that is, to dig into the word of God, and to hold it up as the truth in the midst of the deception, the lies, and the attacks of the enemy. So in a general sense, when it comes to the word of God, you need to believe in the power of the word of God, and you need to continue to obey the truth of the word of God. But how exactly do we see God's word at work in our lives, especially as Satan attacks? I just want to give you five ways we see the word of God working in our lives, and, and it kind of helps us understand how Satan attacks and what we can do about it. So, first, God's word is confronting. God's word is confronting. It confronts me in my thinking, in my feelings, in my emotions, in my living, why I'm behaving and acting. The word of God stops me dead in my tracks and it forces me to consider and to hopefully see clearly what's going on in my life. In fact, James 1, 23 through 25 gives us a really important um, metaphor for understanding the word. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer of the word and forgets about a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And I just want to draw out for you what the word of God says about itself here, that it actually is like a mirror. So we, we take the word of God and we look at our lives and we hold the word of God up and it functions like a mirror, a mirror in which we gaze upon the perfect law of God, which shows us the perfection of God himself. So we hold the word of God up and we see God and what we see is so holy, so perfect and so beautiful, but hopefully if we, we approach it rightly, what we see looking back at us is how much we are not like God, Right? like, oh, that's, that's what God's like, but that's not what I'm like. I see, I see more clearly every time I go to the word, my deficiencies, the stains of sin in my life, my character flaws, the things that don't match up. And you see, what, what the word of God calls us to is to use the word like a mirror, to sift our lives through the word of God, to see what matches up with what God says and what God says is true and what does not. Uh, famous line from a movie many of you know. It says that the greatest trick the devil ever, ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I think that that's it's actually true. But I believe the second greatest trick the devil ever, ever pulled was convincing us that everything is just fine. The devil is so subtle, he's a deceiver, he's clever, he's cunning, and I think one of the most deceptive tactics Satan uses both with believers and unbelievers is simply to have us never really look at our lives, to really have us believe everything's fine, everything's good, all the decisions you're making, all the things you're doing, everything is just fine, don't worry about a thing. We're often so guilty we don't even stop to consider If the way that we are viewing the world and ourselves and God is actually right, sometimes we can actually use the word of God to justify the sin that we're living in and the decisions we want to make. I'll never forget, I preached about a year ago at another church, and I, I finished preaching this message, and, and a, a woman came up to me, really, really sweet and kind, and she was just, just wanted to thank, she says, thank you for the message. God really used it in my life. He really spoke through you to help me see some things, and I, I need to make some decisions in my life. You just, I mean, God just brought such clarity, and so it's natural. I just said, oh, that's fantastic. Praise the Lord. Can you just tell me like, what exactly God brought clarity to you in your life? She goes, now I know for sure that I need to divorce my husband, to which I looked stunned just like this, and I simply said, how, how did you get that from what I preached? I mean, like, I wasn't preaching about, I wasn't preaching about divorce or anything, I don't even know where divorce came from. But here she is telling me that she believes that God is calling her to live in a way that directly conflicts with the Bible. And when I kind of pulled it apart a little bit, I remember asking, like, why, first of all, what did I say that made you think that you should do that? I really want to know. Like, I know I can be unclear sometimes, but that is a stretch, okay? But I, 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 I kind of began to pull it apart. I'm like, hold on a second. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about this. And, and it turns out she's a she's, you know, really new, new believer, but she's like, you know what? I've come to realize that my husband is not a believer. He's not a follower of Jesus Christ, and that he's actually hindering me from following Jesus more faithfully. <laughs> to which I said, actually, the word of God says something very clearly about your exact situation. And we took some time, and we walked through the scriptures, and the Lord was really kind to open her eyes and to show her, listen, to confront her in her life. Listen, how you think about your your job, your family, your marriage, your time, your money, your possessions, retirement, I mean, on and on, every part of your life, the Bible has something to say about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And listen, I really believe that one of the greatest problems that we have um, in in the church and just as Christians in general and, and myself included is that we are far more influenced by the world than we realize. Worldly thinking, secular thinking has crept into our lives. And, and by the way, it just, it's hammering us from all different directions, right? I mean, from, from, from media to the workplace to just the, the world system itself is driving us towards opposing God's thinking. And just seeps in. But the word in God's grace will often confront us and change us. You say, how, how does this happen? It happens very simply. You see, we have to read it, and we have to know it. We have to search it. We have to study. We have to be willing to come to the word of God and ask the simple question, God, what do you think? If I can give you one, one kind of phrase to take out of this point, you know, an application point, this needs to become a common kind of phrase in your language. What does God think? What does God think? And in every area, if you just ask that question and go back to the word of God and just prayerfully engage with the word, study it, pull it apart, bring your life to the word of God and let the word of God come to bear on every part of your life so that it lines up with what is pleasing to him. The word of God is confronting. Secondly, the word of God is convicting. And this is naturally where com- confronting leads to in the Christian life. It confronts the errors in our life and hopefully it leads us to this place of conviction conviction. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, a really familiar passage around here. We we talk about this often, but listen to what it says. Again, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And it is, listen, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. C- can you just see the, the whole context in Ephesians? Or excuse me, of Hebrews 4 there is the idea of the judging of God, the exposing of God, and the word of God, when it comes to bear on our lives, it will often pull us apart. It will leave us feeling naked and exposed entirely because we are before the one who sees everything. And it reminds us, listen, that in our sinful condition, every part of our lives, we will give an account to God. Many of us view conviction as if it was a bad word. <laughs> like I know some of you like, ah, oh, conviction. Oh, I hate feeling convicted. Like, ugh, I don't want any of that in my life. I don't need any of that. I just want to, you know, the power of positive thinking. I don't need conviction. I think we need to redeem the word conviction. Do you remember when certain words used to be bad? Like binge? And like Now he's was like, I'm going home to binge Netflix as if that's a good thing. Listen, conviction is not a bad word, it's a good word. I mean, There is a sense in which when we, when we experience conviction, what ought to come to our hearts and mind is yes! Yes, Lord, conviction. Oh, more, please, give me some more. Oh, that hurts, give me some more. Please! So, I, like, we need to come to conviction and experience, you be like, God, I love that, I love that, so You say, why? Why should we come to conviction like that? Because we shouldn't want anything in our life that God says shouldn't be there. We, we shouldn't want anything in our life that, that brings shame and reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't want anything in our life that people can point to and say, really, you love Jesus? And we should want all of our lives to scream forth the glory of God. Every part, that's what the convicting power of the word of God does. It calls our life into account so that we can bring those things to the Lord and receive forgiveness and grace and the transforming power of the spirit of God by the word of God. You ready for some conviction? Nobody? I was hoping for at least one amen. Amen. Well, I'm giving it to you anyway, so listen to this. I got this quote. I had to experience the conviction, so listen to this. No believer, listen to this. This is what this author says. No believer has an excuse for not knowing and understanding God's word. Every believer has God's own Holy Spirit within him as his own divine teacher of God's divine word. Our only task is to submit to his instruction by studying the word with sincerity and commitment. We cannot plead ignorance or inability, only disinterest and neglect. Ouch. Give me more. 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 I, I want more. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. Give me more of this because I am so done with apathy and neglect of God's word. It's time to get after the things of the Lord. I need this. I need God to constantly, in his grace, come to me and pierce my heart with conviction because, listen, time is so short. The world is so dark. People are so lost out with apathy, in with conviction, amen? If you didn't say amen, you need more conviction. We need to believe this. And there's something to obey here. And let me just give it to you really simply. Listen, whether it's coming to church, reading your Bible, going to small group, whatever context the word of God is open before you, let me just give you one simple thing to pray to God. Say, God, I'm coming to your word. Allow me the privilege of experiencing conviction from it. God, would you please convict me? Show me, God, here what does li- not line up with what is right and pleasing to you. God, please heighten my desire for conviction. Heighten my desire to look more like Jesus. And God, convict me, convict me, convict me so you can change me, change me, change me. You do that, and I, I promise you, God will not disappoint. He will bring that conviction, and in His grace, He will do something else. You see, the Word of God is comforting. The word of God is coming. I'm so, so thankful for this. This is so good. This is so needed because we cannot live constantly in in confrontation or being convicted by the word of God. We need to actually have some relief in our lives and the word of God comforts us so that we don't live in total despair and defeat all the time so we're not constantly walking around going, woe is me God in his kindness, he comes alongside us and and instead of having us live constantly under this great weight of conviction, of sin, he gives this sweet comfort. I love what 2 Corinthians 1 reminds us of, just the very nature of God. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Our God is a comforting God, and in our sin, one of the most comforting things is to be brought back to the gospel, isn't it? To be reminded that yes, yes, we are great sinners, but yes, God's grace is so much, so much greater. We need comfort constantly in our lives And I'm convinced with all my heart that the greatest source of comfort we experience in this life comes from God by His Spirit through His Word. Because life is so hard. And God's Word comforts our soul in the deepest of sorrows. Our sin is so weighty, but God's grace lifts the burden. Satan's attacks are so persistent and powerful, but the word of God says that you prepare before me a table in the presence of my enemies. We can be comforted that no matter how vicious the attacks and the assaults from the enemy, that God is caring for us, that God will comfort us, that God will provide for us. This battle is so hard, but God is so good. I'm so tired, but God gives such sweet rest. I'm so weak, but God is so strong. I'm so sinful, but God is so merciful. Well, how my soul needs to constantly be reminded of the comfort that comes from the good Father, the merciful Son, and the ever-present Spirit of God. Aren't you thankful that when Jesus left, he left us with his Spirit, whom he calls the Comforter? Isn't that so awesome? It doesn't matter where you are. That God's, like The promise of Scripture is this, that he will never leave or forsake you. You're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Wherever you go, he is there with you, and he will comfort your soul when nothing else can. God says, I will never leave or forsake you. His word says that no weapon formed against you shall succeed. He promises that you will be vindicated one day. He says that he will protect you. He says, I will bless you and keep you. He reminds you, listen, when Satan wants to make you feel hated and unloved by God, he reminds you, no, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Find comfort in the person, the promises of God. God's word is comforting. Fourthly, God's word is converting. God's word is converting, and in one sense, this, this is it. I mean, this is maybe the, the real point, that the, the most, I think, particular application point intended by Paul in this passage, that this is about the gospel going forth and piercing the hearts of individuals and converting them out of the domain of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved son, This is the point of the sword of the Spirit in this context. It is advancing the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, the spiritual battle is to prevent the gospel from going forward. I mean, if you just sum it up like that, you understand the spiritual battle. And so you understand then the purpose of the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, is to bring life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Psalm 19 verse 7 reminds us the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul And that sense of reviving the soul there, it it is speaking most specifically of the converting power, not not a constant refreshing, although that's true too. This is talking about the ability of God to transform us in our entirety. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He's talking about the power of the word of God. and He he once said that the word of God is like a lion. All we need to do is let it out of the cage. The word do its work. The word of God and the conversion of sinners that it produces is the greatest display of God's power. Oftentimes when people think of the power of God's word, instantly they go back, well, what's the greatest display of the power? Well, they go back to creation and they say, well, God, at the beginning of time, he made uh, everything out of nothing by speaking. And that is certainly an incredibly powerful display of God's word, but the word of God itself, Paul takes that picture of how God spoke um, light into darkness at the beginning of creation, and he drives it into the way the gospel works in the heart of sinners. You see, God comes along in the same way that he did at the beginning of creation, where there was nothing but deadness, and he speaks, and light bursts forth into the hearts of sinners. The word of God is filled with the converting power of the Holy Spirit. It accomplishes the purpose for which he has determined and set forth for it to accomplish. Remember, Satan is is striving to keep people bound in darkness, it is the word of God, particularly the word of the gospel that that God uses to bring light into the darkness. Look, the more we know and understand scripture, the more we will be able to march through Satan's strongholds and lead people from his kingdom to God's. Finally, the word of God is compelling. The word of God is compelling. It it moves me. It drives me. It controls me. It leads me down paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It compels me to resist temptation as I store up the word of God in my heart that I might not sin against him. It compels me to trust his way because every word of God proves true. It compels me To joyfully worship, as Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, the word of God compels me to live a life of worship. Everything surrendered and submitted, joyful response to God's grace, joyful obedience to his character and to his kindness. It compels me daily to die to myself and to see my Savior Jesus and the great sacrifice he made to redeem me and set me free. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians five fourteen through 15 for the love of Christ compels or controls, same word, us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul's not saying, listen, that what compels him is his love for Christ. Listen, he's saying understanding Christ's love for him compels him. And church, listen, when you get how much God loves you, when you're reminded of that daily in the gospel, in the word of God, listen, that is compelling you to live a life sacrificed for him and for his glory. And I just, I think this is so important to say, you know, we don't have to um, read God's word, we don't have to study God's word, we don't have to memorize God's word, we don't have to meditate on God's word. Listen, church, listen, this is so important. We get to do those things. This is not a duty or a chore. It's the greatest privilege we have. We have been drawn into a personal, intimate relationship with God. He has given Himself to us fully. He has shown us His glory in the pages of Scripture. And then He says, "Come, come and eat. Come and feast on Me. Come and see all that I am, and behold My glory, and be transformed from one degree of glory to another." We get to do these things. This is such an awesome privilege. He said, "Daily? He said, do I need to do this daily?" Well, listen. Daily, Satan wants to come alongside you and convince you to live for yourself and not for Jesus daily your flesh listen is resisting submitting to God's word and daily we are drawn away from him and so we are called to draw near to God daily we get the privilege of coming near to God listen as we open up this book God says here I am the sword of the spirit the word of God Daily, we need to be drawn back to God's word, not Satan's word. By God's truth, not Satan's lies. To live for Jesus from a heart of love. Satan wants to lull us to sleep. The word of God compels us to action, to holiness, to mission. Church, we get the confidence that comes from the helmet of salvation. And the power that comes from the sword of the spirit And with confidence in who we are, in the grip of Jesus, we get to pick up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, in the strength of his might. And God calls us into this beautiful privilege of being a part of his army, to stand on the front lines, to beat back the enemy's attacks, cutting straight into his lies and deception. Seeing people removed from the domain of darkness, Brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. The Word of God, listen, church, as we kind of come to a close here, the Word of God is a judgment against Satan. And every time we wield the Word of God, every time you pull the Word of God out and you slash and you stab and you fight back against Satan and his evil schemes, listen, you are declaring something incredibly powerful. You are declaring his imminent defeat. You are saying to say every time you wield his word you are reminding Satan yeah you're know you know what your time is short I'm gaining victory here and now because of the victory that was accomplished at the cross but there is coming one day a greater victory of all church listen our savior Jesus Christ is coming back again he's coming on a cloud and when he returns he's coming with a sword out of his mouth a picture of the word of God that will bring about judgment And every time we swing the sword of the Spirit, we are reminding Satan that he does not get the final word. Jesus does. So loved ones, listen, don't be an easy target for Satan. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. So let us put on the whole armor of God and stand firm in this strength. listen, The Lion of Judah. Father, we pray that you would help us in this. And God, though we know uh, Satan is strong and powerful in his own right, God, we understand that he is a roaring lion and he prowls around and he is looking to devour anyone he can. God, our hope and our confidence is in the Lion of Judah that we are held firm in the grip of Jesus Christ. That we have been given the most powerful and effective weapon of all, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So God, we're asking now that as you have called us to do that we would put on the whole armor of God that we might stand firm in the strength of your might. Help us now, O Lord, to stand firm as we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. God, give us confidence to know that not only are we standing in victory, we are fighting with the guarantee of victory. And until that day comes, until we see you coming on a cloud, God, we pray that we would be those who live our lives compelled by your word to live for you, our King, our Savior, the God who came and died to set us free. May we live unto you, and for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.